You guys ready? Yeah. Let's do it. Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Matamor Cronin. And I'm Justin Clark. And today we are talking about the future of health and mortality. For this topic, we thought it'd be a good idea to include a medical expert in this discussion. So I'd like to introduce the first ever guest on Hence the Future podcast, Martin Mullen. Dr. Martin Mullen is a physician and eye surgeon. He is currently doing his residency in ophthalmology at the University of Texas. He's also a very good friend and cousin of mine. We have traveled to many parts of the world together, most recently in Fiji. And he's my go-to person whenever I have a question on medicine or health or anything related to those topics. And because he has just recently graduated medical school and become a doctor, he has the additional advantage of being taught the most recent up-to-date medical knowledge. Martin, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. Sweet. So before we get into future scenarios and all the cool stuff about us becoming immortal, potentially becoming <laughs> gods, and all those questions about who we are and some more philosophical, finer points, I think it'd be good to get a current lay of the land for where we are right now. So we hear a lot about futurist medical technologies like robotic surgeries, AI doctors diagnosing patients like with Watson, personalized cancer treatments based on someone's DNA, and any other sort of bleeding edge medical technologies. So I want to ask you, in your current work, how real are these uh, you know, futuristic technologies? Are they being used every day? Is it still pretty new? Give us your insights. I mean, for the ones that you just mentioned there, uh, you know, they're still pretty new. They're just sort of coming to market now. They've been around maybe for the last five to 10 years. Specifically, if you think about like robotic surgery, there's a machine called the Da Vinci that's out there right now. And it's um, mostly used for surgeries like in the abdomen, abdominal surgeries. I know urology uses it very commonly. And basically it's like, you know, there are several like arms of this robot that are going in and operating through really small incisions so that they can do it through a video screen. And the surgeon is actually like in a corner of the room, not next to the patient, operating almost like a video game. A lot of these things are kind of like a video game. So, you know, the advantage, as people say, is that, you know, your smaller incisions, quicker healing time, things like that, you know, less sort of collateral damage when you go in for surgery. Um, and how come but, it's you know, specifically it's, for the abdominal versus like ophthalmology or some other procedure? Yeah, I mean, they are, are sort of starting to introduce this more into other fields as well. But this is kind of the first one, I think, my, mostly because it's kind of a, a bigger area to operate in, you know. So some of like the finer skills and some of like microsurgery fields like ophthalmology where we operate on the eye is really a microsurgery field. And I don't think there are any robots out there yet that can really match you know, the dexterity of the human hand that can really like make very subtle differences with your fingers, things like that. But in ophthalmology now, there um, is a machine called the LensX for cataract surgery, where um, part of the surgery is done through, I guess you could call it a robot, but it's really like an automated laser. Hmm. Um, so the like, if you think about cataract surgery, what it is, is, you know, there's a lens in the eye, kind of like there's a lens in a camera. And when we're born, it's crystal clear. And as we age, it starts to become cloudy. And so that's what a cataract is. It's a cloudy lens. Mm -hmm. So the surgery removes the lens and puts in an artificial lens, an implant in there. Um, so part of it is the surgery is you have to like peel a, a little circle in the, in the top part of the lens, the anterior capsule. 
And right now we do this just by hand by making a little nick in it. And then it's really like, it's like peeling a, um, if you think about it almost as like a chocolate covered or a peanut M&M, you know, and really the mm, shell is like, really about that thick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, so you're just like sort of peeling this hole in the front part of it. Now a laser can just go, you know, you can just line it up properly and the laser just boom, creates the hole right there wow. for you and then breaks up like the center part as well. So, I mean, there are some people who are still like trained. Most people are trained the other way and get used to it and then never really like develop the skills because it is a learning curve on the other machine as well. So, Hmm. but I do think that'll probably end up being the way of the future for a lot of things is that, you know, most of it will be done by a robot um, up until it can really match like the decision making of a human, of an experienced surgeon and like the dexterity of a human hand, which I think is really far off in the future. Hmm. Do these surgeon or these automated surgeon uh, tools, do they speed up the procedure at all? Because I know some surgeries last an extremely long time. Yeah. Like right now, they actually, that's one of the arguments against it is that it like slows things down a little bit because it takes time. You have to bring them to one room for one machine first and they do like the laser portion in there. And then you bring them into the other OR where they have the other set of equipment. So. Um, mm. For somebody who's like really used to the old way where it's just they can get in and like do it really quickly, it's not that much more efficient. But mm. I think as people start okay. to become like more trained in it, it will become more efficient or more efficient than at least what it is right now. Yeah, I was cool. watching this uh, Netflix documentary the other day called Bleeding Edge, which is about it's kind of a, the scary side of medical advances. And it basically talks about all of these stories of cutting edge technologies that ended up having really bad unintended effects precisely because yeah. new equals untested and there were some people that had the da vinci system for some sort of some sort of abdominal something and mm-hmm. they ended up having all of these complications and the basic conclusion was that it's not that the da vinci system was fundamentally flawed it's more that a lot of the doctors didn't have enough training to where right. it was more effective than if they were just going in by hand. Right. And then that's the thing. You always have to be skeptical about a lot of these new technologies come out, especially if, you know, you're a physician. Is this something that like an in- the industry is just trying to push, you know, to kind of make money? Or is this something that's actually going to like help patients, you know, make things better, make surgeries more accurate, um, make outcomes better? And then also, like, you have to consider, like, obviously, like you're saying, there's going to be anytime there's a new technology coming out, there's going to be a learning curve for that. And there might be a period of time where it's not better until the surgeon has more experience with it. So that's also something to consider. And you said that you don't foresee autonomous surgery being something that's going to be widely adopted anytime soon. But Mm -hmm. what do you mean by soon? Do you think, let's say, in the next 50 years... Do you think the majority of surgeries will be done by robots versus by hand? Well, I was about to say in our lifetime, but then that brings up a whole nother point about how long we think our lifetime. We'll touch on that in a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, we should talk about (laughs) that um, next. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to predict something like that. I mean, the way I do... I do see things going in medicine is that things will probably become much more automated with AI, at least from the diagnostic side of things. Because a lot of times, like as doctors, we're just... 
um, you know, interpreting a lot of different, you know, lab values, some facts like EKG findings, imaging, like things like that. And we take this collection of data and, um, you know, kind of make a diagnosis. And eventually, as we have like better AI to do that, I know they're definitely working on that, but it's not quite like prime mm. time yet. You know, so I see probably in the next 20 years, like most of the diagnosis part of taking care of patients will probably be done if not totally by AI and by computers, then at least with that help of having them available to you, you know, and mm -hmm. sort of with human oversight. Um, as far as surgeries go, I just, yeah, it's just harder to say. It, it really matters. Like if you look at how prosthetics have come, like, um, you know, artificial limbs and stuff. I mean, an artificial leg is uh, a lot like right now really, really good. I mean, they've come a long way, um, but still like a hand or an artificial arm is really not as good as a human arm or anywhere even close and right. that's really what you'd have to think about creating is you'd have to be able to create a robotic arm or some kind of thing that can manipulate a really small instrument just as good as a human hand and i think we're pretty yeah. far being able to do something like that it seems like a machine learning pro problem doesn't it yeah yeah i mean in a lot of ways i think most of these diagnostic uh sort of you know challenges that we face are really something that could be solved with machine learning. Because I think the first thing to change probably in the healthcare field is that, you know, a lot of times we rely very heavily on imaging, CT scans, MRIs, things like that. And those are interpreted by humans, by radiologists. And they've been working for years. I mean, honestly, since the 80s on creating a computer-aided diagnostic system that can diagnose what the radiologist can read. And still, it's not nearly as good as like a seasoned radiologist right now. But you just got to think it's getting there, you know, if we just give it more time. Because a lot of these things are pattern recognition, you know, and if if it's really something that, you know, a human is interpreting based on their own experience and can is able to, you know, sort of um, program that into a computer, then the computer will arguably do a better job. But I think the problem is being able to articulate in code like what it is you're looking for, yeah. you know, but with machine learning, you know, potentially you could upload like thousands, millions of images with each one with a diagnosis, and it's the computer itself that might able to be able to pick up on the patterns rather than you telling it what you should be looking for. Yeah. So and that's, that's the, the cool way thing. I see it going, kind of. I mean, well, I was I wonder if uh, there's enough sharing of information among medical establishments because it yeah. seems like it's pretty side. It's pretty, um, you know, they're they're all sort of operating in their own area and they might not be sharing enough information whereas it seems like for machine learning to be really effective we should probably be aggregating all of the all of the cat scans all of the mris all of the different diagnostic right. information well the i think the other would... issue is that you know a lot of these for as as much high tech or as as crazy as some of this robotic technology is that we have right now and some of the really cool, interesting devices um, that we have in medicine. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're very behind the times in terms of tech, too. I mean, there's like, you know, if you think about the electronic medical record, I mean, we took a long time to make it mandatory that people had to have an electronic medical record. Hmm. What do you think is like crazy? Like, you know, people were still using paper charts as of like five to 10 years ago, you know. Right. But there the are some apps now that you can, I mean, I think my sister who's, you know, she's always worried she might have some illness. But, but she, I think, has, has started using this app where basically it has all of her medical information right there. You can right. chat with a doctor live. 
you can schedule an appointment very quickly and they'll tell you if it's worth getting an appointment based on your symptoms and based on your diagnostics. So I right. wonder if that's kind of like telemedicine. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to end up being yeah. some big medical tech company that's going to finally like aggregate the data, put in the machine learning. Yeah. Then... I mean, I wish like Google or Apple or one of these companies would just take the challenge on themselves, but I think they don't want to deal with like all the bureaucracy, the government, the regulations, so well, they Amazon kind of steer is clear of that. Healthcare. You know? Amazon is starting a their own healthcare. They partnered with a couple of big insurance companies. Right. So it seems like they are kind of making that move. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very, you know, it's a real challenge and it's something that's like really important for our society, but it might take one of these big companies with, you know, the best coders and stuff to be working on this problem in order for get this thing moving. Because otherwise, you know, you have these like smaller electronic medical record companies who are just like basically creating some software for us to, you know, document, like chart what we've seen in the patient. Like, I don't think they have uh, the vision of like creating something um, like more AI friendly or autonomous like in the future you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and is there current a diagnostic system that you use where you can input all of the measurements and symptoms and whatever else and it'll give you some lay of the land like sort of like an insider's web md or is it pretty much all just you looking at a chart and decide you know deciding based on the knowledge that you've gathered throughout medical school and your training and your experience it's more it's more the latter even now, I guess I can only think of a few instances where you have a lot of, um, you know, sort of AI inputs like with the EKG is read by a computer right now when it prints off, mm -hmm. but it's not nearly as good. I mean, it's, it's pretty good. It's surprisingly like not that bad, but um, it's not nearly as good as a trained physician. Yeah. Um, and otherwise, I mean, when you look at maybe a lab value that would be abnormal that it comes up on a patient, it's going to like flag it red. Or if you prescribe a medication that might have like an interaction with another medication, it might flag it for you. Hmm. You'd be like, are you sure you want to prescribe that? So all those things I think are good, but it's nowhere close to having a system that is actually like offering a diagnosis based on a set of like all these different variables, facts, and, you know, right. sort of the whole picture of the patient. Yeah. And I mean, there are some really interesting future scenarios of what that could be, like Michio Kaku. He's he's not my favorite futurist because sometimes he goes a little, he doesn't have like a single underlying philosophy that joins everything together. Like, for instance, Yuval Noah Harari does. But he has some interesting future scenarios where it's like you wake up in the morning, as you're brushing your teeth, you get a full body scan that basically scans <laughs> for any sort of irregularities you know, maybe it's also in your toilet. So it sees like, you know, what's your <laughs> what levels of nitrogen and whatever else you have in there. And basically, it'll flag, oh, you need to see a doctor or you need to get this test. And that would just sort of happen automatically day to day. And that's obviously, it seems like that's a little far out, especially with the current scanning technology where, you know, there's lots of radiation and other issues. But could you see something like that happening in the future? Yeah. I mean, what I kind of see happening is like as we learn more about what genes might predispose you to different diseases, you know, you'll probably everybody will get their like some kind of genetic test, maybe even at the time they're born. Mm -hmm. And it'll say like, oh, you have 
you know, X, you know, 60% chance based on like this genetic makeup that you have of developing heart disease. So it should just be something that you like pay more attention to. And, um, you know, kind of all these risk factors based on your genes, you know, that will be, I think really the next thing as we start to learn more and more about, you know, what genes do what. Yeah. Um, I could see that becoming a a little bit scary also, because right now it's voluntary if you want to give over your DNA to 23andMe. And with that information, they can pretty much do whatever they want. They can sell it. The police can, um, you know, can get a warrant in order to search that. That's how they caught the Golden State Killer finally was because and it wasn't even he who had done 23andMe. It was I think it was like his uncle or some distant relative or, or a relative who was close enough that they could make a match. They could narrow it down to like four people. But, uh, if they did that for every person while they're born, you could mm-hmm. potentially see some scary scenarios where, you know, some virus breaks out and they're like, well, we're going to have to quarantine everyone with this genetic, genetic makeup. Right. <laughs> wow. Or like these people are at risk for rebellion. We must keep a close eye on them. Right. <laughs> like, but or like anyways, you have before, like, yeah, genes that like predispose you to, you know, being a murderer or something like that. Yeah, like being like a very aggressive type report. person. And we're just going to like keep a very close eye on you from like the government or something. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, before we get too ahead of ourselves, I want to talk about what is what I think the most interesting question for this whole topic, which is the issue of mortality and death and what causes death. How can we prevent what causes death but also what causes aging how can you slow down stop or even reverse aging potentially and then there's many other questions like how long would you even want to live like let's assume the medical technology is there and you can basically replace every organ whenever you need to you can even replace cells fix neurons whatever you need to do so I guess maybe that's the first question. That's the first question we should ask, just so we get like sort of our own what we would like to happen, ideally in our own personal lives. So how many lives? Sorry, how many <laughs> years? Oh, that's another interesting question. How many? How many lives different would lives would you want? <laughs> <laughs> For me, I think it would be three hundred. How many years <laughs> would you ideally want to live? Option A: the same amount you naturally would if we have today's technology. Option B, let's say 2x that. So if you typically would live to 100, you live to 200. Option C, let's say anywhere from 200 to 1,000. And then D would be more than 1,000 years. So what, what would you guys, how long would you ideally like to live assuming you would have your same physical fitness that you have right now? Oh, interesting. So uh, I was going to say it depends. I mean, I don't want to be 200 years old, old and decrepit and can't do anything. And I'm cold all the time. Right. You know. No, let's let's assume that you have you can replace any neurons that go wonky. You can, you know, you basically can like prevent aging altogether from this point forward. I mean, then I would want to live a thousand years, probably, you know. If you could say that I'm going to have the same quality of life that I'm having now. Well, is exactly physical as quality of life. You might, physical you know, with quality. all those memories a thousand years from now, you might be like a crazy person. <laughs> True. Yeah. 
but it would definitely be more than whatever. Like, I don't think the time that we have here on earth is, is very long at all. I mean, we've even doubled like the life expectancy, you know, over the last 200 years or so with, you know, advances in medical care. And I still think like the average age of 78 or, you know, close approaching 80 in the U S is still not that old, especially when you consider like most people's quality of life once they're in their seventies or eighties is not that great, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's really only, um, that you can guarantee, can't guarantee anything, but that really most like people really have like, years of really yeah, good, exactly, living. good quality of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you take care of yourself and everything, yeah, but if you can the- tell me that I'll be as same health that I'll be when I'm like, you know, 30 or so, then yeah, I definitely want to live to like 200, 300, maybe a thousand. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. But realistically, I mean, People talk about expanding your lifespan, but what about your health span? That's mm. that's kind of what a lot of researchers are focusing on right now is how to fo- how to increase your health span rather than lifespan. Right, um, right. But I would definitely take a thousand if I could, you know, <laughs> keep this. Yeah, this, I think I, I would come health. in somewhere around there. I think I'd probably come in more around like seven hundred and fifty years. <laughs> just just because i don't know that last 250 yeah well just because I, I i'm not that confident in in living uh, that long humans ability to not nuke each other or cause some terrible thing to occur right um or you know maybe once we reach artificial super intelligence then the other super intelligent aliens start to take notice of us and you know, it's it's just hard to know what what's going to happen when you look at time scales that that are that long, but certainly more than two hundred years, and certainly less than a thousand years for me. You got to think that people, if they could live to a thousand, they would have a much longer term view. Yeah, especially that if you had a brain machine interface society. where you can augment your memory and processing mm-hmm. system, like. Oh, do you hear about the new upgrade? I just got extra RAM. Like I'm processing. <laughs> you know how much work I can do in an hour? You wouldn't believe it. Like, <laughs> I mean, do you want to remember everything though? You know, they have those. There are those people out there who like never forget anything. You know, yeah. and their like relationships with other people are less like really messed up because they can't let go. Of, they hold so many grudges. They can't forget like little things that somebody said. Right. It's like once you accumulate enough memories, like so many, is that like you were saying? Like, is that even a good quality of life? Well, I would probably want it to be more similar to the Black Mirror episode where it's not like you instantly remember everything all at once, but if you need to reference something that happened like 20 years ago, you can just Just rewind it and then you just (laughs) see it and you're like basically living it through in first person like a a movie. Right. If you had to or if you wanted to, you could delete those memories just like you can delete files in your computer which you know has some other implications especially yeah. with, with the law and yeah it's, yeah it's fascinating but to kind of get back to your point or like initially what we were talking about like what is aging though you know yeah i mean yeah. it's really just um you know we it's accumulation of damage really to our our cells like just with normal metabolism living normal life like over time over a certain number of years you know you just accumulate damage to your dna and that just makes cells like not as you know, viable as they once were. And then eventually that results in some kind of disease process. So, um, I mean, there's an, there's one interesting, um, YouTube video. I think it's a TEDx talk by this guy, Aubrey de Grey, who's like a Cambridge researcher who's really into like anti-aging research. And he kind of makes the analogy of like always, you know, as we 
developed technology that can really like harness the power of like reversing damage you know so it's almost like having a lot of like maintenance checkups for your car or something Mm. you know you go in you see what genes might have been mutated what might have been damaged just through normal aging process or you know through you living in a city and breathing smog and being exposed to uv light and all that kind of stuff and if we have a way to sort of reverse those genes or do gene therapy that can come somehow like you know slow down or reverse that aging process then you can prevent like whatever pathology might end up developing as a result of that. And that Mm. potentially could prolong your, or, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely like prolong your life. Aubrey de Grey is a really interesting person because he works for the SENS Research Foundation. They're trying to end aging. Um, He also has a book called Ending Aging. But yeah, like you said, it all amounts to, well, most of it amounts to cellular damage. But what do you think about the stem cell loss as we age, too? That's one of his seven causes of aging. I mean, they've been researching so much with stem cells, and, like, my gut feeling is that there's a lot of potential there. Um, I mean, that's the problem a lot of times is you have cells that die or cells that age, and you want to replace them with new cells. Exactly. And you have these stem cells that have potential to grow into like brand new cells based on, you know, your own DNA. Hmm. And um, I think that that is going to be a huge thing for the future. I don't think there's anything there that's quite uh, viable yet. But, you know, it's kind of like you got to think about the other challenges. Like you could regrow tissue like in a Petri dish in a lab, you know, oh, this is like muscle or this is heart tissue or whatever. But how do you actually like introduce that back into the human and get it into the spot that you need it to be mm. and have it make all the connections that you need it to make with the rest of the body? Like that's, I think, mm. probably where the biggest challenge lies. Yeah. So it like if you, you have like some a nanotechnology, some nanobots. Exactly. Yeah. That's why you have those people that are injecting young blood into themselves too, oh, based yeah, on that study. Yeah. It was they, like that episode of Silicon, Silicon Valley. Valley. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, is there anything yeah. to that though? I've always wondered. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a mouse study where basically there was a it's called parabiosis where they have two mice and they basically stitch them together. The blood from the young mouse is being fed into the old mouse Yikes. and vice versa. So it it makes the it extends the older mouse's life, and it also made the younger mouse age faster because it was getting old blood. Yeah. And there was some. I just I was looking at that study just to um, see exactly what the takeaways were, and it was the conclusion was kind of about stem cells because hmm. the young blood has a lot more um, stem cells. Well, it makes probably sense. like a bunch of different like growth factors or yeah, and, like nutrients yeah, that are in younger blood or something like, you know, I think probably a lot of that is kind of BS, you know, <laughs> doing it right now. But I think, you know, they got to find out sort of like, well, what is, what component of the blood is it that is actually mm-hmm. helping somebody live longer? Maybe it's like antioxidants. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's just that they are getting more oxygen or something. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you have to look right. at exactly what is it that's prolonging the life. And it's probably not just going to be a fix like you're just stealing other people's blood or manufacturing <laughs> synthetic blood. You know, right. it'll be more complicated than that. It does oh, make yeah. sense it though that, that you would mm-hmm. need to combat entropy by taking something away from taking Someone. energy away from one source and diverting that energy to another source. Yeah, because it's like humans were only meant to live for 
1.5 billion heartbeats. Like I, mm-hmm. I was reading this study where they say every mammal pretty much lives for 1.5 billion heartbeats. So a whale and a mouse, they both have 1.5 billion heartbeats. It's just that mouse mice are all strung out all the time, like freaking out, bugging out. <laughs> and because of all that anxiety and their heart always well, beating. Well, just smaller too, you know, they're hard. I, and that's know, that's the other smaller. thing is there's these scaling laws where as you get bigger, you tend to live longer because there's an energy saving, a 25% energy saving. So if you double the size of a mammal, you'll get a, you'll only have to expend 75% extra energy for that animal so it's sort of like economies of scale like you know with like big businesses mm-hmm. where you can get like it's almost the way i i i think of it is more like almost like a neural net where it's like as there's more neurons and there's more uh complexity to the system where there's more like adjacent um neurons and interactions that can happen it's for whatever reason there seems to be some energy savings Mm-hmm. But I don't know what the necessary conclusion would be as far as how we can extend our life from that principle. Like, do we just make giant people whose hearts beat really slowly? And <laughs> But, you know, a tree, for instance, you could think of the trunk of the tree as the main artery of that tree. And it, you know, a tree lives on a time scale that is so much slower than the time scale of us and like way slower than something like a mouse. And for, for all we know, some trees may not have a natural point at which they die. They might, you know, some trees have been around for thousands of years and we don't know, you know, when they're going to gonna naturally come to the end of their existence if there is some point like that for them. Yeah. The only studies that I'm aware of that have shown, like, the ability to prolong life in, in animal models have been situations where they've, like, starved the animal or given them very, like, just minimal food, just, like, the bare amount to survive. And because it slows down their metabolism so much, it's just the same concept that probably they accumulate, like, less oxidative damage over time. And they actually are able to, like, double the life expectancy of, like, certain insects or mice or whatever like in a lab from doing that but obviously Mm. like we don't want to have to starve ourselves you know like that's the only thing that they've been able to quality of life is also important exactly it's like there there was one joke where some old guy goes into the doctor and the doctor says oh yeah you're great you'll live another 20 or 30 years all you got to do is you can't eat any of the foods that you like. You can't go and do any of the things that you like to do. <laughs> and yeah. the guy's just like, screw this. And then he just lives, a, you know, another 10 years where he's doing exactly what he wants and he has a much happier existence. So there is a trade-off. Yeah. It's not just about living for as long as you can. Which, yeah. which leads me to another subtopic, which is cryonics, which I think is really interesting. Uh, Tim Urban of Wait But Why, he did a post about it a while ago. And people tend to think of cryonics as freezing rich dead people because they're not ready to accept the fact that they've that they can no longer live. (laughs) But if you actually look at the science, it makes a ton of sense because our definition of what is meant by death, like where you draw the line of death, has drastically changed over time. Like, for instance, someone in the 1700s, if they got pneumonia, they're pretty much a goner. They'd be like, okay, this guy's done. And if they're, if someone on the street, their heart stops, they stop breathing, they'd be like, okay, this guy's dead. We pronounce him dead. We're going to bury him. But even nowadays, when someone's heart stops beating and they stop breathing, you don't just say, oh, well, he's dead. 
you do, you know, you do uh, mouth to mouth, you CPR, EKG, yeah. like whatever. Um, and you can imagine in the future that even what we pronounce as someone who's dead right now, which is four to six minutes of no oxygen going to the brain, that that actually might not be a point of no return for maintaining your brain health. And they've they've actually been able to show that you can increase it to almost about an hour if you uh, reintroduce warm blood and, and do some other sort of techniques. So the whole idea of cryonics is that they do not deal with dead people. They deal with people who are near death and they don't actually freeze them. Instead, they basically, um, I forget the word for it, but they basically like turn it into glass. Vitrification, I think is the process. And they, they have like liquid nitrogen. And the whole idea is that just like in the 1700s, how death was, a, was drawn at a much earlier line, the line of death now is much earlier than what we're going to have 100 years from now. So if we can just freeze someone for 100 years, 200 years, once the technology is there and assuming the cryonics company is still around, then these people can essentially become fully healed and maybe it'll just yeah, be I mean, like I think waking up like, from a long nap. Yeah, I think like, I mean, what it really comes down to is, you know, is there damage done to the neurons that is like reversible or, you know, mm-hmm. if you consider that your brain is you, you know, then if you only go, you know, a couple of minutes without oxygen and then those cells die, you know, and if you can't somehow reverse them and get them working again, then that's like how I would, you know, define death. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, yeah, maybe by cooling things down, you get less uh, damage once like the tissues reperfused or something like that. But as of right now, I mean, we don't have a way that, you know, once those cells are dead, they're dead. I mean, there's no way of bringing those back. Um, So I don't know. I mean, the thing I'm a little skeptical about like cryonics or cryogenics, because at least my, you know, basic understanding of is that let's say you do like freeze somebody. I mean, you're also damaging the tissue. I mean, cells aren't really meant to be like lived that in temperatures that low. So, right. you know, once you like and water thaw them out or whatever, like freezes. that tissue's dead. You know? Right. So, well, well, that's why it's not actually freezing. Yeah. That's that was so a... you. But don't they pump you with chemicals too? So it's like they pump you with chemicals. Anti freeze. So uh. so you don't. So you're so the water doesn't freeze and expand, but surely the chemicals themselves do right. some damage. Well, that's that why, be... there, so there's actually companies that do this, like Acor, I think is the name of it. And for their premium price, you get your whole body frozen, which is something like $200,000 plus the amount for them to transport you once you actually die to their facility. And also they make you have a life insurance policy. So you basically pay for it throughout your life up until you die. But the alternate option, if you want to get a little, you know, a little bit of a better deal with your cryonics, <laughs> is you just get your brain frozen, and that's mm-hmm. only like eighty thousand dollars. Like, which, you know, a lot of people could afford that if they save for it throughout their the rest of their life. So it's not like so out of the park, as far as what you know. Like, I've always wondered, would it even be something that would be worth pursuing in your own personal life? Because it's it's kind of really more of a philosophical question than a scientific question of if you would even want to both have the option of waking up in the year 2200 and and what that might be like, both as like a hit to your psyche, knowing everyone's dead and also trying to adjust to this crazy new world. Um, And it also could be like, 
you know, some people, especially if you're religious, you might like I know my mom would say, oh, well, you're not going to get to heaven if you do something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is more of a philosophical question. Would, would you guys ever consider like, let's say this, let's say you got a coupon and they said, you know what, because you're such a good data scientist, Justin, and because you're such a good ophthalmologist, Martin, we're going to have you be uh, we're going to comp your cryonics. Would you accept that? I mean, I'm not going to bank on it working, but if they're giving it to me for free, then why not? <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, there might, I mean, could they like reverse the freezing damage? Could they like, you know, somehow reconnect your brain to a body? I mean, that's all like so far off and, you know, hypothetical as to whether that would ever even be possible. Um, but uh, I don't know. There's probably no harm in uh, freezing your brain and, and hoping. <laughs> yeah. Brain yeah I'd have to agree. <laughs> but when, Whenever you come back, is it even guaranteed that you're still you? Like, let's say a bunch of your brain cells die. Does yeah. some some human that approximates what you used to be wake up, or is it actually That's a really good question? Well, I think as long as you have all those connections, like all the neuronal connections in your brain that have the same pattern, and you didn't have any like cell death, then that is essentially you. I mean, yeah, yeah. you are definitely like in a lot of ways tied to your body, but I think your general, mm-hmm. like if you transplant, ever able to like, you know, take your brain out of your body and put it into somebody else's, I still think that that's, you know, that that would be you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so as long as you're able to maintain those connections. So if, if you're able to maintain, but if there was some cell death, then there might be some weird damage when you I mean, come then out. It would just be like you had a stroke <laughs> or something, you know? Yeah. That's probably what it would be like. Yeah, well, I was yeah. talking about this question with my friend Manny Rocha, who's a he's a neuroscience researcher, and he thought the same sort of thing, that you pretty much are not only your brain, but you are your nervous system. So if you were to basically, like, pluck someone's brain out of their head and take also, like, the whole spine and all the nervous system and put that into, like, a cyborg body, that would be you in a cyborg body. It would very much be you. But well, I, what if you had like in a cyborg body, you know, you had none of your, you know, sort of other physiologic drives and impulses like you never got hungry, you know, you're in other ways you're really robotic. Then it's like, is that you, though? You know, is that still you? Yeah, it's hard would you to still say. have all the well, I would mean, you have all the haptic like would you be able to feel everything, you know, on your hands and your arms like I feel like that's a huge part of being a biological creature is having all right. of your senses. Well, that's why that's why Manny uh, said it's not just the brain, it's your whole nervous system. But then mm-hmm. my my counter to that was it seems like in the future we could also have artificial sensors. I mean, they're already trying to work on that right. for people who've lost limbs. So if you have your brain, but you have all of these artificial sensors, so it feels like you ha- like you can feel your body, even if it's a cyborg body through artificial sensors, it seems to me like you would still be you. But then if you go one step even further than that and you say, okay, well, is it actually your physical brain that makes you you? Or is it more the blueprint of all the connections of your brain and also the memories that you have? And if that's the case, couldn't you just basically take a 3D model of all of your connections and store all the memories and basically transfer that into a full-on cyborg, like like full-on robot, would that still be you? 
I think so. If you consider that it's not just like the physical mapping of uh, all those neuronal connections, but how they all behave, you know, how they interact. And if you could some way, you know, be able to quantify that and give it to a computer, then yeah, I think that kind of would be you. But you have to know like which connections fire at which time, given which like stimuli. Like if you see this, then your brain does this. And uh, I don't think but, that'll be possible until you have AI studying, like AI to just like map our brain. But let me let me give another another spin on it. Let's say that you do this 3D mapping of all the connections in someone's brain, and you take all their memories. But rather than killing the original you, you keep the original you alive, and you basically just download all of this into a robot. Would that mean there are two yous? Is is the second one actually you? Because it, it seems to me like if you can copy something and not have to destroy the original, it's hard for me to believe that it would still be you. And I know it sounds like very sort of new agey, but intuitively it feels like what makes you you is more sort of your energy and your aura more so than just like the raw connections. So it seems like, like you know, in Latin, they, the word spirit comes from the Latin spiritus which is they didn't think that you that you were your heart or your brain. They thought that you were the air in your body, like the when you like breathe in. I know Justin and I have talked about this, <laughs> but it's like it's like that, like that's your life force. It's like and you have this real energy, like if you walk up behind someone lovingly versus if you walk up behind someone menacingly, they're going to feel that. And so I almost wonder if what makes you you is more that sort of energy or aura that, that people have. And how could you transfer that energy over from a flesh and bones body to a, a robot body? Yeah, we need to know what it is first. Like what, um, like on the most basic level, what is that aura actually? Is that like some sort of quantum effects yeah like some some sort of field that your body's creating what what is actually yeah going on there i mean it'll probably take some kind of combination of like machine learning and quantum computing to really even be able to understand how our brains work you know Mm -hmm. because it's just so complicated and it's i don't think any one human could ever really be able to understand how all those connections work and fire and stuff like that so i mean i think like because quantum computing really is studying things down to the quantum level like wow do these molecules really interact how does this behavior happen because it's not just being programmed in ones and zeros you know it's giving you you know different situations based on the behavior of molecules Mm -hmm. so like if you can that would be the only way to be able to you know potentially copy some kind of data set that really is you or whatever but kind of to go back to your question about um, you know, let's say you copy yourself over into some other kind of like cyborg like thing. And then there's two of you, um, sort of simultaneously, like, but both of you now from going forward from that point on are going to have like different life experiences, different right, things. And then right. that creates like different versions of you, almost like oh, a yeah. you in like a parallel universe. Like the garden you know? of forking paths. Mm-hmm. It's where, the, right. so if you're familiar with the book, the garden of forking paths by Jean-Louis Bourget, I think that's how you pronounce it. But basically the idea is that if you believe in the multiverse theory and whether or not you believe in free will, it doesn't really matter. But every decision that is made in every organism that creates essentially another parallel universe, like not necessarily parallel, but it creates another version. So whenever I'm thinking, okay, am I going to go take a sip of this tea or am I going to take a sip of my LaCroix? That will create two different universes. And you basically fork out 
from from uh, that central point. And so it seems like and I was talking to actually Kip about this, that if you make a big jump that changes either the organism itself or its relationship to the environment or the environment, because it really is all one giant organism environment, then you're fundamentally changing the identity of that being. And it is still connected in a way because it forks off from the original path, but it might not be what we would consider close enough to be who we are right now. And I wonder if a lot of these forking paths lead to the same sort of digital immortality and like some of the paths, yeah, they might continue to lead to something more similar to what we have right now. But it seems like in the long run, a lot of them might fork over to digital immortality and it might not exactly be us, especially like if you consider if you live for thousands of years and if you are able to basically be without a body if you need to, like imagine how different you would be. Because you're not like you can't not describe any organism without also describing the environment. Like think of a frog. You try to describe the life of a frog without describing its environment. It's impossible. Like how does a frog reproduce? It meets other frogs and they do hanky panky. Like where do a frog? Where does a frog live? How does it get food? It's all about the environment and the organism are this one thing. So if you fundamentally change that relationship and it becomes a robotic or even like a digital you know, where you're this ephemeral, like basically Alexa, where you can, wherever the internet is, you are, wherever a camera right. is, you can see, wherever a sensor is, you can feel. That would be fundamentally different than what it is to be a flesh and bone. And you'd be like a god. Yeah, you would be a god. <laughs> yeah. And you could choose to be in the form of a body, just like Zeus can take the form of a goose and have sex with wh wh whomever he so pleases. <laughs> <laughs> It would be similar in that you can take whatever forms if it's convenient to you. But I guess the real question for me is, would that organism be happy? Would it have the capacity for happiness that we have? And would it be, be able to sustain that happiness for thousands of years? Or would it eventually just want to off itself? Yeah. I don't know. Probably depends. I mean, it depends on the experience of the organism i'm sure some will be extremely happy some will be sick of it after a couple hundred years and just off themselves well and, and it's good to have that escape valve it's kind of like being a vampire yeah. where yeah you can live forever but if you ever have had enough you know just get a <clears throat> silver steak or or, or whatever <laughs> and uh you can you stab can yourself oh. okay that so would really change the discussion on suicide too right right well, I think the discussion on suicide is already changing with... That's true. Especially yeah. with euthanasia. I mean, did you hear that story that just came out where this old man went to a hospital and shot his wife who was had terminal cancer and then shot himself? And people freaked out because they thought it was like an active shooter situation. But then it's like they realized this couple had been trying to find a way to end the pain but because of the laws, there's no like euthanasia just isn't allowed in most wow. places. No, so I didn't hear about he took that. It, it isn't organ, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But anyways, I think uh, I think now you know we're about forty five minutes into it. I think we should talk about what we believe to be the worst case, the best case, and the most likely case for the future of health and mortality. So let's start with the worst case scenario because that's the most fun. What do you think, let's say in the next, 
I don't know, hundred years, or we could go longer. We could go a thousand years. I, I let's say let's say the next let's say the long term, the next one hundred to a thousand years. What do we believe the worst possible case is for the future of health and mortality? So I think a lot of it is going to come down to like genetic engineering, and I think in the beginning it'll be a really positive thing because you'll start curing people with diseases and disabilities, and you know um, then almost it'll be like programming like designer babies. You know, I think of a movie like Gattaca a lot of times as that that is almost like a dystopian future that we could be headed towards because it's like so reasonable that most people would be like, well, of course, if you give me the option to select for a gene like in, uh, you know, my future child that will protect them from not getting cancer, like obviously I'm going to choose that. So there'll be a lot of really easy ones and then it'll just become commonplace for a lot of people to do that for their kids. And then it'll become easy to manipulate like characteristics and things that, you know, are a little more like, you know, hair color, eye color, things like that. And those kind of things might only be available to, uh, you know, people who have money to pay for it. And then you're almost creating like a greater separation between, you know, the rich and the poor. And or they might might only be available in countries like China, like starting off. And then we in the West realize oh shit, if we don't do this as well, we're going to fall behind as a whole nation, as a whole people. And yeah, like you could would... select for like IQ or like things like that. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. basically there might be prejudice against people who don't have that genetic makeup. And then right. you are in a situation like Gattaca where they won't even consider you for a job unless you hand over your DNA and you're like, oh, I'm sorry, you're you're flawed or, yeah. in this way. Or, or that rather way. than asking someone on Tinder what they do for a living, you ask them, hey, can I have a, one of your hairs? <laughs> <laughs> Let me see what's under the hood. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I think. So what would like that, what would that lead to, though? Like, let's, let's, let's envision what that scenario would look like if everyone's sort of designer babies. Like, what's the downside? Well, well I don't think it will happen to everyone. You know, I think it will only end up happening to uh, wealthy people who are able to afford it. And then you're um, just like further widening the gap between rich and poor. There's also the risk of people not truly understanding the genome yet and pre, you know, doing this prematurely. Because even if you have genes for something, you still need to make sure that you're expressing the right genes. Right. Right. Well, like well, you have to be able to understand uh, this like so well that you know exactly what you're doing with manipulating each gene. And that's why like the more experimental versions will come out in like extreme cases where people have like, you know, very serious like hereditary disorders that they're trying to get out of their genome so that their child doesn't in- inherit something that could potentially be like life threatening within the first few years of life, you know, something mm-hmm. extreme like that. So that's probably how it'll first get introduced. But as it becomes better and better and better, it'll probably become easier and you know, you can select for these other, like, maybe you could argue less important genes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What about the interaction effects? Like, let's say you did select for an insanely high IQ, but it turns out that, you know, one of the side effects of this is you also make a psychopath. Right. right? Like you have more social intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mean, I think that we don't know very much about it. That's why it's like very scary. Yeah. Yeah, like my friend, the same guy, Manny, the neuroscience researcher, he works with zebrafish and he's actually, they've genetically engineered zebrafish. So they're all brain. So you basically got these zebrafish brains floating around in the bowl and it it allows them to study the brain in a very transparent way that you wouldn't typically be able to do. 
So I was asking him, I was like, well, what is it like to be a zebrafish brain? And he's like, well, it's probably not, not that great because, you know, it's, it's not like all the connections are in place in the way that they should be. It's more just like a clump of like neurons and it's probably a pretty miserable existence. So, so we don't want to, <laughs> I mean, is it conscious? I don't know. It's yeah. So it's, it's hard to know, but I, I actually think as far as the worst case scenario, I think that's like pretty likely scenario. Like the worst case to me, I always okay. go back to like, you know, if you were basically in hell for eternity, I mean, that's, that's the worst anything could possibly be. And if right. you think about immortality, there is always the risk of something like that happening. Like imagine if we achieve immortality, but we don't put in an escape valve. And then you've got these conscious beings that, you know, like in that other episode of, of Black Mirror, where you're basically like trapped in this like room and you, you cannot. Um, the guy keeps escape. reliving his yeah. execution over and over. Oh, oh yeah. That, that episode. Yeah. So yeah. The, I mean that's As, like the worst entertainment case, for other but people. Yeah. I don't know how likely that that would be. Also, but well, I guess the even worse thing would be if you can create almost like infinite conscious Pain. digital selves, and they—that's something Sam Harris actually talks about—is what if robots do become conscious, but we don't necessarily realize it, and they also have the capacity for suffering, and we unwittingly are creating all of these conscious immortal beings that are basically suffering for eternity just while we're like tinkering with how to get the right one that fits our needs. Yeah. If the objective function of a machine learning problem was actually causing suffering for computers, there would have, there would be a lot of suffering caused. I mean, that's, that's the entire purpose is introducing this objective function that, you know, if that causes right. some sort of well, because that's what that's... consciousness is. It's like if you don't have the ability to suffer, it's hard to argue that you're conscious in the sense that we consider to be conscious. Um, right. Like I think a tree can still suffer. I mean, they still they still give their resources to a dying tree. You know, so I think all organisms do have some capacity for suffering, even if they don't have the same sort of pain that that we do. So yeah, so let's, okay, now let's move on to the best case scenario. So in the next 100 to 1000 years, what is the best case scenario? So it seems like amongst us, we would want to live between 200 and 1000 years with as good of a quality of life or better than we have now. So how as could, long as everyone world, else, what would a world like that look like, right? Because if, if everyone is able to do that, how would that change demographics, population? If people stop dying, but new babies are continuing to be born. Yeah. Would you only have to be allowed to have like one uh, child in order to replace yourself? So there's no like population issues then if everybody's living into their 300s. Yeah. But even if you consider that, then, you know, your kid when they're age 20 or whatever, they have a kid and, you know, you're all living for thousands of years. So if you imagine like the already the birth rate is far outnumbering the death rate. So if you eliminate the death rate altogether, it seems like we would explode almost like a virus across the cosmos. You have to use space colonization would be like the only we way. Would have to. For, yeah. Yeah. Are we still biological creatures in this situation? Because if we were cyborgs and didn't need food, you know, we could reclaim a lot of land that's, you know, making corn and right. yeah. make cities. So we could 
if we didn't need to eat, we could probably increase the carrying capacity of Earth a little bit more. But then uh, it's like if you're living for like 300 years and you're really able to reverse aging or slow down the aging process. I mean, then you can just be like, all right, well, you have a child when you're like 100 years old. And <laughs> that's like, you know, just like your whole time scale is different. You know, it's about a third of your life there that, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think the most like, I mean, I think we will end up in the next hundred years curing most of the major illnesses. Like, um, I think cancer, there'll be a developed, you know, you'll test for each individual cancer and you'll have a specific therapy targeted for whatever the, you know, genetic disorder or the mutation is in that cancer. And if there's ways that we can slow down or even reverse the aging process through, you know, the new technologies of stem cells, gene therapy, all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's kind of the way I think it's going. And then, you know, most of your medical care will be like maintenance, like we were talking before, just like going in for these regular checkups. Hopefully they'll be able to pick up on like little changes, you know, before it actually causes any pathology. And then they'll have ways to reverse it and somehow. Mm -hmm. Well, and what do you guys think the life expectancy would be when we make those strides? Like even yeah. just like, let's say we, we cure cancer. What, what do you, th you know, so the life expectancy up until now, currently in the first world, it's about 80 years old. But if you look up until now, it doesn't it doesn't rise gradually. It rises in jumps. Like when we when we come out with antibiotics, when we realize germs are a thing, you know, when we make <laughs> these certain uh, discoveries, there's a big jump. So it seems like curing cancer and other of the you know other of the most common diseases that that would be Heart somewhat disease. of a jump. What do you think yeah. that jump would be in the first world for people that are able to benefit from it? If it's 80 years right now. Yeah, I've heard. I, mean, I think it comes to you got to prevent this damage from happening in the first place or like find a way to reverse it if it's happened. You know, like your arteries are hardening as you're aging. And as long as that's happening, your blood pressure is going up and it's going to increase your risk of having a stroke down the line. And like you have to prevent all those factors that like create the situation for disease, you know, from happening in the first place. And that's the only way. We've done a good job with a lot of the medications for, you know, heart disease, you know, especially with like bypass surgery stents. I mean, I think people are living longer. We're doing a better job because of that. Cancer treatment's getting better. It's get, definitely getting there. But the final frontier is the brain. I mean, we still do not know so much about the neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. And, you know, even if your heart's pumping away and even if your body's like relatively, you know, mobile with some of your new joints and things like that. I mean, if your brain is atrophying and dying, I mean, what kind of quality of life is that? Hmm. So that is really what I think is going to, if you're going to live for 200 years and you want the same quality of life, we have to be able to figure out like what makes, you know, neurons degenerate specifically in like these diseases like Alzheimer's, but also there's just like normal aging atrophy. Like if you get a scan of somebody's brain in their seventies or eighties, a lot of times they're just a like normal aging process, like a little bit of, you know, atrophic brain. It's just like a little bit smaller. I mean, it just, you're not as sharp as you were when you were in your twenties. It's just, that's part of the aging process. And we got to find a way to mm -hmm. prevent that or reverse that. Well, I've heard that there's neuro stem cells that you could potentially use to create any sort of neuron that you would need and then like you said the difficulty is how do we actually put it in the right place and make it interact in the right way so it's all connected it seems like with nanotechnology machine learning with all of the advances that are being made it seems to me like that will certainly happen in the next 100 to a thousand years Probably not before. I mean, maybe it'll happen during our lifetime. You never know with AI because it could right. just be a rapid hockey stick progress. 
But so, I think it so, all rests on quantum computing, as we were discussing mm-hmm. further. I mean, if you have that kind of power to compute that much data, then and you know maybe they hit that point at somewhere in the next ten to twenty years, then maybe the developments will just be like you know million times faster than it would have been otherwise. And right. We could see it happen in our lifetime. You know? Because quantum computing takes into account the how the universe actually works with probabilities, and I feel like it also takes into account the multiverse and maybe we'll end up like having to sort of draw on energy from other <laughs> other parallel universes. Other parallel universes. Like we're like <laughs> sucking out the life from like all of these poor people who took a sip of tea instead of a sip of LaCroix. <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully it allows us to live on for a long time, just like vampires sucking blood from, from human hosts. <laughs> no, I'm mostly kidding. <laughs> but not really. Not really though. So let's let's talk about if this is a real possibility that the technology one day potentially soon will be there so that we could either slow down, stop or reverse the aging process. What should we do in our own lives to live as long and healthy of a life as we can until those advancements are made? What tips do you guys have? So I mean, I guess also, our what, what have you what have you done in your own lives that you found to be beneficial as far as your diet, your exercise, like any, any other tips just for, for listeners as far as how they can stay as healthy as possible? Yeah, I mean, I really don't think it's like that complicated right now. And I wish there was like a more, you know, kind of way to biohack your body and have exactly like X number of nutrients or vitamins. And I think all that stuff is not really proven right now. I mean, I think just the general principles are like, you know, like don't smoke cigarettes, like eat relatively healthy, you know, mostly like plant-based diet, um, like enough protein kind of thing and to get enough exercise, like both something that's going to build your muscles and, um, your cardiovascular and like strengthen your cardiovascular system. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's nothing that people haven't heard before, you know? Yeah. I like to look to the old guys that are still really fit. Like for example, Laird Hamilton, who's a big wave surfer Mm. and Mark Sisson, who's an ultra marathoner or was, but they are in their 60s and they look like they're probably 30. Mm. I think it's probably good to look at the older people who've actually been there, done that, and have healthy life when they're old because there's a lot of snake oil out there too. Yeah. Like a lot of the Instagram models that like post health advice, you know, low fat diet, you know, like no yeah. fat and all, all that good stuff. And I don't know, it can, it think- can be really damaging. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of it comes down to stress levels. And if you, like, you know, Laird Hamilton, for instance, surfing is a very meditative activity. I was just surfing yesterday, and you just feel this communion with the cosmos when you're out there um, amongst the waves and the fluctuations of the ocean. And same thing with yogis. I, I read this book by this guy who basically did brain scans of some of the greatest Tibetan monks and compared them to other people in the urban societies who were the same age and these yogis had brains of basically like 40 year olds at age 70 and i think a lot of that's because they've been able to manage their stress levels and they're not constantly suffering in the same way which reminds me of this this other book that my friend romel recommended which is uh it's a it's a fiction book it's called lost horizons and it's basically about this 
mythical land called Shangri-La in the mountains of China and this plane crashes and these people go there and people there live hundreds of years and the people who are outsiders who are from the fast-paced world of London and World War One or whatever they go there and they realize everyone there is living such peaceful lives no one looks at their clocks no one really ha- rushes with anything everything is done very deliberately They sit around, they drink green tea, they read books, they talk amongst themselves, they live everything in moderation, and they have this feeling of just peacefulness and serenity with all of their surroundings and with all of the people there. And I think that's a good lesson for how everyone can live a longer life is if just try to manage your stress. Like for me, like smoking weed helps me and it's better than a lot of the prescriptions that I would that I would otherwise take to manage my anxiety being with nature, like walking in the grass, being out in the ocean. I think that, you know, getting your, your sun, enough sunlight, but you know, not too much sunlight. I think those are all like things that, that have been successful for humans for thousands of years. And we should, we should stick to those uh, practices and really try to like minimize our stress to live a longer life. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there are factors like, you know, genetic factors that are out of your control, maybe, and environmental factors that we don't really know. Like maybe, you know, there's some kind of toxin in our water or something that we just haven't studied and like all these other things. But then there are like another third of it is probably things that are under your control, like all right. the things that you mentioned, like reducing stress, taking the best kind of care of yourself, like eating right, exercising, like all those things are so important, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've, one of the big things recently has been sleep, too. There's this researcher named Matthew Walker out of Berkeley, and he just he just wrote a book called Why We Sleep. But it basically outlines the entire... It, it gives us a, a lot of research into why that's probably the best anti-aging strategy you mm. can have. Besides picking your parents and grandparents so you get good genetics, mm. which mm. is the best anti-aging strategy. Mm. Mm. That, that's another thing that this is a little bit unrelated, but I read this other sleep study that basically studied people in Africa who live in very much the same way that we lived thousands of years ago. And they studied the sleep patterns of the, of the tribal members. And what they found is that older people sleep much shorter amounts of time just naturally which we kind of already knew especially grandmas tend to sleep the lowest the lowest amount and the basic conclusion of this article is that this was part of our system for basically maintaining safety amongst the tribe because they would almost be like the canaries in the coal mine that because they didn't sleep for very long if anything happened like someone came to attack or a wild animal came in or whatever they would be there so there is this natural cycle for things where we tend to live for 1.5 million or a billion heartbeats and, uh, you know, older people tend to sleep less. So I think being in touch with those natural rhythms while we also develop ways to surpass those biological limitations scientifically is probably the best, uh, the best parallel solution we can do for both of those. Mm-hmm. So I think we're coming to the end end of this. Um, it's been a really great discussion. Is there anything else that you guys have wanted to say that you feel like we haven't touched on yet? 
don't know. I feel like we've touched on a lot. Um, well, I just I just want to ask Martin when we're going to have contacts so we can see other wavelengths, so we can see infrared and ultraviolet oh. light and increase increase the bounds of our perception like that. Well, I mean, I think that limitation rests on like our natural biologic like photoreceptors that we have in the back of our eye. You know, it's not going to be something that you're going to be able to change by just putting something in the front of your eye. And we've right. adapted to be able to say, see certain wavelengths of light because, I don't know, there are different theories, but like a lot of the visible spectrum like penetrates only so deep into water and life probably began in, you know, some uh, like lake or ocean or something like that. So that's why we've developed the ability to see those. So I don't think like a contact would change that. But But, but that brings up an interesting point, which is that we can only see a very narrow spectrum of of life, of of, of what's out there. And like, just like how we can only hear a certain narrow spectrum of all the sound wavelengths that there are. So it seems to me, and also if you believe in string theory, there's something like 11 dimensions and we only can perceive three of them. So it seems to me like there are higher dimensions out there and it would be, I think, uh, arrogant to think that there are not higher dimensional beings than ourselves. So it seems like as we talk about the far reaching future of health and, and immortality, maybe what ends up happening is we basically become higher dimensional beings because if we become immortal, we're essentially freeing ourselves from time. From our biological limitations. And maybe we yeah. will have have vast amounts of joy and happiness and we'll just have this higher level of understanding and we'll be amongst all the other higher dimensional beings. You know, <laughs> we'll just be this like grand like tree of life, kumbaya, beautiful existence, sunsets and sunrises all the time. Sounds awesome. Give me some Sounds of that. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm in. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, we're all in. Well, thank you everyone for listening. This has been the future of health and mortality. I want to especially thank Dr. Martin Mullen for joining us, our very first guest. Also, always thanking Justin and our listeners. You guys can know how to reach out to us. Please rate and review us wherever you go. Hence the future on all our social media. You can give us a suggestion on hencethefuture.com. And we will tell you what the next episode will be sometime in the upcoming week. We have not decided yet, but tune in next time. We are all gathered here today to talk about three very important things. We're going to talk about what has happened, what is currently happening, and what will inevitably happen. The past, the present